0: Session two in our series, What's the World Coming To? And this one, as you see at the top, is focused on the rapture of the church and some of the issues surrounding approaching the rapture and some things that will happen during and then and then at the end of the rapture. If you were not able to be with us last week, do not panic. You didn't miss a whole lot. We had an introductory session and the first half of page nine tells you what it is that we, we spoke about. And so we introduced there last week the idea that God created the world and has a purpose for it, and he's going to bring his world to its appointed end. And so the world is not chaotic despite appearances very often, it is not out of control. All of the events that are occurring, occurring in God's world are occurring precisely on his timetable and moving inexorably toward the end that he has, has appointed. And so we pointed that out under creation and, and curse. But the end that he has appointed because of the curse, the entrance of sin into his otherwise good world, is going to involve judgment. And we'll see what some of that judgment involves in subsequent, uh, subsequent lessons. The Bible gives a number of predictions, then, about things that are going to happen in the future. Many of those have already happened. A number of those are still to happen. All of those that were predicted to have happened have occurred exactly as the Bible has said, And so that gives you great reason to believe that the things which have not yet occurred are going to happen precisely as the Bible predicts as well. Some of the purposes, top of page 9, for which God gives these predictions are listed there for you to confirm that what God says is accurate, to warn, to encourage, and to, to motivate. Central to God's plan for His world is the nation Israel. And so you see there that we discussed last week briefly some of the promises that God made to Israel. We'll see more about the fulfillment of those in subsequent lessons. But for now, you should have gotten last week, and if you weren't here last week, you should get now, that those prom- many of those promises were unconditional. In fact, in that paragraph on page 9, we have that word. They're unconditional. Because they're unconditional, they are going to occur because the authority and the character of God is at stake. It is not upon the Jews, it is not upon the Israelites to be deserving of these, of these promises. In fact, we are quite undeserving of all of God's promises, as are they. But God has unconditionally said these things are going to happen. They are not conditioned upon them and their character, and therefore, they will happen. At the end of today's lesson, we're going to see that fourth thing that's listed on page nine, why it is that God remains patient with a world that continues to go awry. We'll see some of God's good reasons for that patience in today's lesson. With that then, God has predicted what's going to happen with his world, but nothing has happened in terms of his judgment and intervention in his world, as yet. Now that's despite what Harold Camping says. Harold Camping, you all know, said a week ago Saturday, this was going to be the end, May 21st. People are waiting with bated breath. We were here discussing what's the world coming to the day after the end of the world, last week. And it didn't happen, of course. We were all really, I was really waiting with bated breath as to what his excuse was going to be. And you all have heard the excuse? It turns out that there was a judgment. There was a judgment. God did judge the world. But it turns out, he says, to have been a spiritual judgment, not a physical judgment. Now I gotta tell you, this is my kind of judgment. <laughs> Where nothing happens. God has no such judgment. Where he says stuff's going to happen, but then it doesn't actually happen. But that's what Harold Camping claims occurred on May 21st. Our calculations were all right. That's what he says. That's a quote. Our calculations were all correct. But we were wrong in thinking the physical judgment was going to occur on May 21. A spiritual judgment occurred. The physical judgment is now going to be on October 21. Meanwhile, continue to send contributions into Harold Camping. And so, what is going to happen? Well, God has not forgotten. This delay, this delay in God's judgment, leaves many to think that God has forgotten about the promises that He has made if they believe in the promises that God has made at all. So, look at the bottom of page 9. God has not forgotten. We're currently living in a time called the church age. And as was mentioned last time, God is calling out for himself now a people so that they can turn to Jesus Christ alone for salvation, be rescued from the wrath to come to live, to live as pleasing to God. We're in what seems to many like a lull, a time when God is doing, doing nothing. We are in, as that first sentence says, the, the church age. Let me just give you a few passages that show that the church age had a beginning and the church age will have a a definite end, as we will see in uh, later pages in this lesson. But the church began at a very definite time. How do we know that? Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, I will build, future tense, I will build my church. So when Jesus was on earth, the church did not yet exist, but he said, I am going to, I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18, Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, Jesus is recorded as saying, in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So something that is future in the near future, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. And then the third passage is 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this, that we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, the body being the body of Christ or the church. So Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, in a few days you will be baptized with the Spirit. It was future, near future at that point. And that baptizing of the Spirit formed this body that is called the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Well, we see where that actually historically occurred in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. And on a day called the Day of Pentecost, the baptism of the Spirit occurred for the first time, thus forming this thing that Jesus predicted in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, in a few days you will be baptized, and that baptism of the Spirit formed this new thing, this body called, called the church. And so the church age had a very definite beginning, nearly 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost, and it will end with the removal of the church from God's world in something called the rapture, thus the title at the top of page 9, the rapture, notice it's the rapture of the church. And So folks wonder, what is going on in the meantime? Why is it that God delays? We'll take a look at page 10. Peter answers that question about a seeming delay, this lull, during what's called the church age this way. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In that passage, Peter gives four reasons that we are in this so-called lull, this time in which we are waiting for the next thing to happen on God's prophetic calendar. We're reminded that God created the world by His Word. That goes all the way back to Genesis 1, where God brought the world into existence for His glory and for His purposes. But notice number two. Peter reminds us that God has already intervened in human history by destroying the world once in the past, that time via a flood. What Peter is saying is this. That the Bible does not teach, here's a 20 cent term for you, does not teach uniformitarianism in any form. Uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism. Just sound it out. Now what's it mean? It means that the Bible does not teach that things have been in the past uniform, nor will they be in the future uniform. Those in 2 Peter 3 who are scoffing about this coming say all things go on as they have from the beginning. That's what Peter records them as saying. In other words, they've been uniform; It's all the same. Peter says they forget it hasn't been the same in the past because God intervened via a flood and he destroyed the world and it won't be the same in the future so the Bible does not teach any version of uniformitarianism going to the past or going into the future God is interventionist God has intervened and he will intervene in his world as he has promised now just as a quick aside uniformitarianism is one of the great fallacies of the theory of evolution the entire theory of evolution is based upon the idea that things have progressed evolved in a uniform way, from the past to the present. But if there have been cataclysms that have interrupted that uniformity, and there have, things like a flood, then what you look at, when you look at the geologic column and so on, is not a uniform evolving progression, but rather something that has been upset, even turned upside down in many cases. So an active, true, and living God intervenes in His world. He has in the past and He will in the future. That's what Peter is saying. The Bible teaches no version of uniformitarianism in either direction, past or future. Look at the third on page 3, the third thing that Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 about why God is delaying. God is preserving the world for judgment. Far from forgetting the world, He's actually preserving it. If God had forgotten the world, now get this, the world would spin off its axis into oblivion. It is only the preserving power of God that keeps this world in existence. God is keeping it and preserving it, but it is reserved for the judgment that is to come, says, says Peter. And then fourthly and importantly, God is using this time to bring people to repentance and faith for salvation in Jesus Christ so that they can escape that very judgment. The Bible tells us that as the time approaches, there will be indications There will be environmental issues that are going on, things that are happening in God's world that will attend the uh, coming of the end. One of those is increasing wickedness. The truth is God has not forgotten about His world, but the Bible tells us a number of things that will happen as the day of Christ's return draws nearer. Among them, an increase in false religions that culminates with the great harlot spoken of in the last book of your Bible and chapter 17, Revelation 17. This great harlot's a reference to a false system of religion and values that represents all false religions at all times. It's called a harlot because, now note this, it's drawn people away from what they should love, God, and enticed them to a false love and satisfaction. How close are we to the next thing event on God's prophetic calendar? Of course, I don't know. I can say that many of these signs we see And we see the amalgamation of religions and the breaking down of barriers that were once based upon doctrinal truths such that it really doesn't matter anymore. And that is undoubtedly preparing for a time when people will be willing to follow a false religious system. If there's any particular religion that most people adhere to in our day, it's the religion of tolerance. And the worst thing you can be is right the worst thing you could possibly believe is that you're right about something. And part of the reason that we devote ourselves to this religion of tolerance is because we've confused two things. One is pluralism. We live in a pluralistic society. All that means is that we live in a country where we have the freedom to express whatever views we possess. Pluralistic. And frankly, I'm glad that we live in a pluralistic society in that sense but what many people do is confuse pluralism with relativism and those are not the same the fact that everyone is entitled to his or her opinion does not mean that all opinions are equally valid and that's what relativism says. and we have quickly descended into the notion of relativism your opinion is as valid as my opinion we're all just it's all just a matter of opinion and therefore tolerance is the one religion that most people are willing to adhere to And it lays the groundwork then for a time when people will be willing to give themselves to an amalgamation of all religions, thus denying the truth of God and true religion. Bottom of page 10, here are some of the things that will attend the coming of the end. False teachers claiming to be religious will deny Christ through destructive teaching. Peter says, false prophets also arose among the people. But just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And we see this sort of thing happening. I mentioned Harold Camping. Um, so he's just one, you know, and, and it really, I can't contain myself. Okay, It's just loony. But here he's teaching this stuff, and, you know, you got people that believe it and give money to it. But Harold Camping is just one example. There are are many more people who have much wider followings who are teaching false things. So health and wealth and prosperity gospel is hugely popular. The idea that the good news is that God has guaranteed that you're going to be healthy and wealthy. And that falls under the condemnation of Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven preach to you a gospel other than the one you received from us, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. And then he goes on to repeat that. I say it again, says Paul, if we or anybody, an angel from heaven, preaches to you another gospel, a different gospel. He even says there it's in fact no gospel at all. It's foreign to what we have taught. Health, wealth, prosperity is false teaching. And the television airwaves are filled with people who are teaching that false doctrine. Rob Bell just came out with a book that says that there is no hell. Love Wins is the title of the book. Very popular, you know, to say, hey, there's, there's no hell. I was just joking a bit ago. Hey, it's my kind of judgment, a judgment where nothing like happens all of us want that but the truth is the Bible doesn't teach that The Bible teaches there is a coming judgment and that judgment does involve a place called hell and if we're going to be the believers in the Bible and claim to be preachers of the Bible as Rob Bell claims then we cannot deny those doctrines even if they're difficult for us top of page 11 people will not only make religious claims, but they will deny the teaching of God in His Word as part of those claims. 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit explicitly, explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, do you all see that happening? People who want a feel-good kind of message. You know, look, when you, when you leave here on Sundays, it's, it's good with me if we all feel good. But there are times where the Bible says things that are very hard for me to study and say, let alone hear. And they're hard for you to hear as well, right? But if you're going to preach the Bible, you're going to have to say those difficult things and we're not always going to feel good. But see, if you go to Joel Osteen's church, you always feel good. That's why Joel's in a stadium. Because people like that. Now, you say, Pastor, you really shouldn't mention names. I don't mention names gratuitously. I only mention names of people that I am absent. Not just people I disagree with. I disagree with lots of people. They may be wrong. I may be wrong. I don't just mention people I disagree with. I only mention people who are teaching heretical doctrines. And Joel Osteen is teaching heretical doctrine. And the Bible tells us that people will love that sort of thing. And gather around that sort of thing. And people will be lovers of themselves and lovers of pleasure. Number, and number four, will become more sinful. Now what does that mean? Look at 2 Timothy 3.13. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. How is it that people become more sinful? I mean, is it possible? We're born into the world as sinners. So how is it that we become more sinful? And how is it that people, aren't people already and haven't they always been lovers of self and lovers of pleasure? Putting those two together, here's what's going on. This is talking about the lifting of God's hand of common grace from His world. You all heard me pray if you were here in the first hour, thanking God for His special grace in saving us, thanking Him for the means of His common grace that He gives to all people Christian and non-Christian alike, believer and unbeliever alike, that common grace has a number of forms. Jesus says God causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. That's a means of his common grace. Everybody benefits from that. God has given us civil government that protects us from the effects of evil. Everybody uh, benefits from that means of God's common grace. But another one is this, the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit. In the presence of believers, as there are fewer believers, there is is less of that restraint in the the form of believers. One. When the rapture occurs, believers will be removed completely. And you will not have the restraint of evil by the Holy Spirit in this world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 teaches that very thing. 2 Thessalonians tells us that that he, the Holy Spirit, is the one that is preventing the coming of the Antichrist, the lawless one, until he be taken, he, the Holy Spirit, be taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. And so people will begin to go from bad to worse as God's hand of common grace restraining the effects of evil is gradually removed from his world. Those means of common grace are many, as I've said. Security apparatus, military, those kinds of things protecting us from the effects of evil, but the restraint of evil by virtue of the Holy Spirit and mores in society that develop because of believing influence, which begin to break down, and there are fewer and fewer restraints on the desires of people. See, it's not that people are really more sinful it's that with the breakdown of those restraints they have the opportunity to sin more and sin in greater ways we see that happening beginning to happen in our day my dad died in the mid-1970s and I've often thought if my dad were to come back today and see America see the country that he left come back to Michigan and he would have just turn on the television. He, would be, he, he, would, he wouldn't believe what's on television. He wouldn't believe what's on prime time television. He would not believe the way people walk around. <laughs> what they're dressed in or not dressed in. All that. He just wouldn't believe the licentiousness of our world. Just 40 years ago, in two generations, it has changed greatly. And some of you are old enough to know that. As well, that continues, as the removal of those restraints continues, then it's not that people are more sinful, it's that people are able to sin more and in more overt ways. We see that happening. And so a time of judgment then will come, bottom of page 11. At God's appointed time, a period of judgment will start that the Bible calls the tribulation. Tribulation is a period of seven years during which a world leader will rise up, gather nations under his leadership. During that time, however, God will pour out many judgments on the world as a response to their sinfulness. These judgments are described in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and we will look at some of those. They are a time of wrath, and they're seen in Revelation chapter 6. I'll let you read the passage on your own, but you notice we have highlighted there that it's a time of wrath. And here are some of the ways in which this period, the tribulation, is referred to in Scripture. Sometimes it's called the day of the Lord. Sometimes referred to as the great tribulation. The time of Jacob's, that is Israel's trouble. It's referred to generically as the wrath of God. It's also referred to as the 70th week of Daniel. Now if you were here for our Bible in 90 days series, then you may have heard me go over this, I will briefly remind you of what is meant by the 70th week of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, Daniel predicts this. He says, 70, in the King James Version, it says 70 weeks are determined for thy people. And then goes on to give a number of things, six of them in fact, that are going to happen during that 70 week period. And the NIV, it does not say 70 weeks. It says 70 sevens are determined for thy people for these six things to happen. Now, why weeks versus seven? Literally in Hebrew, the word is seven. And it's 70 periods of seven somethings. And when we use the word week, we think of a period of seven days. But Daniel chapter 9 is speaking of a period of seven some period of time, seven days. Days, years, months. Now, we don't have time to prove it to you, but in the context, it's 70 periods of seven years. And Daniel is saying there are 490 years for these six things to be accomplished. One of those is for the Messiah to be killed, to be cut off. And if you do the calculation in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, he's got a period of 62 weeks, and then he's got a period of seven weeks, which is 69 of the 70, 483 years are accounted for, and there's one period of seven years left dangling. And guess what that is? That's this last period of seven years. And this last period of seven years called the tribulation, the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th period of seven years spoken of in Daniel, the 70th week of Daniel, is spoken of in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And the time period is actually spoken of. Let me give you the passages. In Revelation chapter eleven, verse two, Revelation eleven two, it's spoken of in two halves, seven years with two halves of forty two months, it says. Forty two months, forty two and forty two. Three and a half years and three and a half years. Or in Revelation eleven three, it's spoken of as a period of two halves of twelve hundred and sixty days. So 42 months and 42 months, 1260, 1260, three and a half, three and a half. Revelation 12 and verse 6, again, 1260 days. And Revelation 13, 5, 42 months. Now, why the two halves? Because Daniel says this in Daniel chapter 9. He says, in the middle of the period of seven years, in the midst of the week, The ruler who will come that we know is the Antichrist will break his covenant with God's people, Israel, in the midst of that that seven-year period. So the entire seven-year period is God's judgment, his wrath, but that wrath becomes particularly intense in the latter half, the last three and a half years, after the Antichrist breaks a treaty that he has made with God's people in Israel. And so the book of Revelation has 42 months, 42 months, 1260 days, 1260 days, two halves to the seven-year tribulation. In the bottom of page 12, here are some other descriptions throughout Scripture of that time period. So, where are you going to be in all this? Where are we going to be? That's the next page. The rapture, the removal of the church. Now, sometimes people ask the question, do you believe... In the rapture. Now listen, um, it's, it's, it's in the Bible. You have to believe in it. Now the word rapture is not in your English version. So sometimes people say, no, it's not in the Bible, so I don't have to believe in it. But if you had a Latin version of the Bible, it would be there. It would actually be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. And there, in the NIV, it says, we will be, quote, caught up. And that's the word in Latin from which we get rapture. We will be caught up or snatched away, raptured to be with the Lord. So the Bible most definitely teaches a catching away, a snatching of God's people, or what, it, what we call the rapture. And further, I am convinced that it teaches that that rapture will occur before the beginning of the tribulation, the seven year period, and that those who have come to Christ, who are part of his church, will be removed at that time, before the beginning of the tribulation. Now, here's some of the reasons I believe that. Let me give you a few passages. Do you all remember when Jesus left the earth? It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, Luke is continuing the rest of the story now of Jesus' commission to his people, but he picks up where he left off in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus has risen, and he's shown himself for 40 days. And then he gives final instructions to his followers, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. And then it says he was taken away, and they were standing there looking up. And then two angels appear and say, why do you stand looking up? And they say, this same Jesus will return just as you saw him go. Now, what's interesting about Acts chapter 1 is where they were. Where were they when that happened? Luke tells us they were at a place called the Mount of Olives. So Jesus departed. He left from the Mount of Olives. And they are told he's going to return just as you saw him go. That's Acts chapter 1. Zechariah in your Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. Zechariah 14.4 says this. In that day, in the coming day of the Lord, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. When he returns, his feet are going to be planted on the ground. (laughs) His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, the place from which he departed. But in between that, the time when he left from the Mount of Olives and the time when his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives in the future, there's him meeting his people, not with his feet on the ground, but 1 Thessalonians 4, we will meet the Lord. Anybody know where? In the air. So his feet do not come back to earth, but rather we are caught to meet him in the air and then... He comes back and his feet stand on the Mount of Olives and we have what we call the second coming. And that's why then I believe middle of page 13 in something called the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. It's a fancy term, pre just means before. The rapture will happen before the tribulation. Now some believe in a post-tribulation rapture. Now what would that be? The pre-tribulation rapture is this. Before the seven-year tribulation starts, God removes His people from the earth. Then there's the seven-year period of judgment, and then Christ returns, the second coming, we with Him at the end of that seven-year period. That's the pre. What would the post be? You've got the seven-year tribulation, and post, after that's over with, We are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And he returns at the same time. Now, why do they even have a rapture at all if he's just like returning? Well, one of the reasons is they got to deal with 1 Thessalonians 4. (laughs) It says we're going to meet the Lord in the air. So you got to have some time where you're meeting the Lord in the air. The problem is with a post-tribulational view, you have a U-turn. You go up. And then you come back down. Now, if you get motion sick, this could be a problem for you. But the Lord has us meet him in the air and then come back to the earth. And then he does war in the Battle of Armageddon, establishes his thousand-year kingdom, and so on. That's one view. It's held by a lot of people. It's not my view. If you hold that view, it's okay. But I'm telling you what I understand and why I understand it. And it's important for us because we would like to have some idea of where we're going to be when the tribulation and all of this judgment occurs. There are a number of reasons why Scripture indicates that this is going to happen pre. I've already given you some of those, but the bottom of page 13, there are a number of passages that teach that the Lord will spare His church from the wrath to come. You see those in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Look at page 14. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. Because you have kept my word, kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The following paragraph explains that some people understand that you will be kept from the hour of testing to mean God's going to keep you through the hour of testing. I had to do a paper when I was in seminary on this very passage. And for reasons I won't bore you with, I'm absolutely convinced that when John tells us in Revelation 3:10 that we will be kept from the hour of testing, it's not kept through, it's kept out of the hour of testing. We will be removed before the hour of testing that is called the tribulation. There are passages which teach that the rapture, that at the rapture believers will be taken to be with Christ, rather than Christ coming to be with believers. John 14 is the very first time this is hinted at in Scripture. The night before Jesus dies, He begins to prepare and comfort His first followers for the events that are going to follow ensue the next day. And He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go... To prepare a place for you, I'll come again, receive you to me. That where I am, there you may be also. So a number of truths for us to see out of that. Also, Second Thessalonians 2 teaches a number of things that indicate that the rapture is going to be before the time of tribulation. If you look on page 15, at the top of page 15, you have the remaining quote from First Thessalonians 4. That we who are alive and remain at the time of the Lord's first phase of the Lord's return will be, and you see that phrase there, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that's what we refer to as the, the rapture. We'll be caught up together with the dead in Christ. Those who have died but who belong to Jesus will be raised from the grave And if we are alive at the time of the rapture, we will be caught up together with those who have died in Christ. Meet the Lord in the air, and we will forever be with the Lord. That being with the Lord is going to include, seven years later, as we'll see, returning to the earth. Other reasons why we believe in a pre, or I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, are passages which teach the imminence or any moment return of the Lord. So a post-tribulation rapture, for instance, you know, this eminence thing, you've got seven years. At the end of the seven years, then you know when the rapture is supposed to occur. But we don't know when the tribulation is going to commence and thus uh, the rapture could occur at any time. It's the next event on God's prophetic timetable. Bottom of page 15, there are passages which teach the church to look for the coming of the Lord, not for the coming... Of the tribulation and then what's gonna be going on while we're in heaven with the Lord during that seven-year period in our final moments let's look at that page 16 One of the things that will happen is the judgment seat of Christ so those who have come to God through Jesus Christ if we die we will be raised at the time of the rapture if we're alive it's in our lifetime We will be caught up alive to be with the Lord. We will be changed. Our bodies will be changed, glorified. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. And we will have this seven-year period with, with the Lord. But what happens? Well, one of the things that happens is something called the judgment seat of Christ. And it's taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We have it listed for you there. What is that? It's a judgment for believers. It's not, and this is important, it's not a judgment for whether you go to heaven or hell. It's a judgment for what you did with what God gave you while on earth. And Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 10, middle of page 16. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now since, and that should say 2 Corinthians 5, not 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9, is about believers. The judgment of verse 10 is a judgment of believers. And then we go on to show in the paragraphs that follow at the bottom of page 16 that the issue of heaven or hell has already been decided for the believer. Jesus has taken our punishment in full. Our sins have been forgiven. This is a matter now of rewards as a result of faithfulness to the Lord while on, while on earth. There will be a judgment then for believers. We'll all go to heaven, but there will be a judgment for believers. Crowns will be given. them. page 17, you see those, those crowns? One of the questions, if you think about these sorts of things, is God's going to give us rewards for faithfulness even though the truth of the matter is the only way I can be faithful is by His grace and His work in me? That's always created a bit of a conundrum for me. I don't know what conundrum means, I just wanted to say that. But it helped, it helped solve it for me when I looked at Revelation 4, bottom of page 17. The rewards are ultimately for the glory of God, and they will be cast, those crowns will be cast at his feet. We will give them back to the Lord who deserves them anyway. And so it will not be meritorious on our part, but something that recognizes the work of the Lord in a continuing way in our lives in these crowns that we give back to him. So there will be the judgment seat of Christ, and then there will be, page 18, the marriage of the Lamb. The Bible refers to, as you all know, the church as the Bride of Christ. The middle of page 19 we have listed for you there, Ephesians, page 18, Ephesians chapter 5. And in Revelation chapter 19, you also have the Bridegroom, Christ referred to, receiving his bride, his church. And there is this this union of the church and the church's Lord, Christ. And it will be a time of rejoicing. Look at Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then He said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, these are true words of God. And so all of us who are saved and who are part of God's church, part of the bride of Christ, look forward to the time when we'll be united with the bridegroom, the Lord himself. And that will occur during this period after we are raptured and before the second coming. So what should we conclude then about this? God is going to judge his world. He's delayed this judgment for the reasons given at the beginning of this lesson. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of His church. It could happen at, at any time. So what should we, how should we respond? Well, we should long for His appearing. But in order for us to long for His appearing, it does mean that we need to be living the way He has said, doesn't it? Because there will be a judgment seat of Christ for us. And so one question for those of us who have come to Christ is, do I long for his appearing? If he were to come this afternoon, am I living my life in a way where I would be delighted that the Lord has returned right now? And as I stand before him at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. So we should examine ourselves, those of us who have come to God through Jesus Christ. But then those who have never come to God through Jesus Christ, Those who will be raptured are those who have come to Jesus. And the rest remain. And remain for what? The judgment poured out from God upon his world. And then that judgment will be followed by Revelation chapter 19, a great white throne of judgment. And I saw all, small and great, stand before this great white throne, and they were all judged. And they were all removed from the presence of God forever. Because they had rejected the offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ. So what should you do? You should do what we have on page 19 and following. Bottom of page 19, acknowledge who you are and who I am. We are sinners. And believe that Jesus came into this world as man to reach the bar of God's expectations that we cannot reach, to reach that bar for us. He came to be everything we should have been and to die the death that we should have died so that we can be forgiven, eternal life and hope be given us through Him. He's paid the penalty for all of our sins, enduring God's just anger that should have fallen on us. And because of that, He can offer us eternal life. Top of page 20, what do you do? You turn to Him and you trust in Him. Hear this. Your sin will be paid for. You will either pay for your sin yourself forever or you'll receive the payment that Jesus made for you on the cross. And he offers that to you in love now. You can receive that now. No hoops for you to jump through. You don't clean up your act. You come to Jesus and he cleans up your act. You receive the free offer of eternal life that he gives you and can give you because he died for your sins. Now, friend, if you fail to do that, when he returns, then you will receive the just payment for your own sin and pay for that yourself forever. He lovingly offers it to you. I urge you to receive it. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this reminder of the truths that you teach in your Word about your predictions for what is going to happen in your world as it comes to your appointed end. Lord, you made the world, and you are going to judge the world, and you are going to create a new one, a new heaven, and a new earth. And because you were sovereign in the beginning and are sovereign in the end, you are sovereign over everything that happens in between. It can only come out precisely as you have predicted because you're in control of everything that happens leading up to it. And so we take comfort in that. We take comfort in the fact that you are on the throne and our otherwise chaotic-looking world is in fact proceeding apace according to your calendar and timetable. Thank you for that comfort. And thank you most of all for the comfort that we have in knowing that we have a relationship with you undeserved to be sure, but given to us by your grace through what Jesus Christ has done for us. We thank you that God the Son has come to earth and done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And having received his free gift of salvation, you have changed us. And you are changing us on a daily basis to be conformed into his image. And Lord, as we look forward to his coming, we long for his appearing. And the marriage of the lamb with his bride. We thank you that we can be a part of that. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has never come to Jesus Christ. That right now they are asking you for the salvation that you offer freely. That they're having the humility to admit that they do not meet your standard. That they, they like we, have sinned before you. And that sin requires a payment because it's an infinite offense and infinite payment but that payment has been made on the cross by the Lord Jesus. I pray that they'll receive what he offers and thus be brought into your family and secured of a place with you for eternity. Go with us this week, we ask you. Grant us safety. Help us to represent you in a way that is worthy of your name and bring us back safely next week. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.